Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Life is all about attaining that wisdom. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Elise Robinson. Elise is a talented director, teacher, and all-around great person. I've known Elise for nearly 20 years. It was a treat to catch up and talk with her about theater, craft, and collaboration. Regarding collaboration, we talked about the importance of trust in creative acts. We also explored how life in pandemic is an opportunity to further explore empathy and privilege while at the same time, these new constraints can spark new elements of creativity and how those constraints can be productive. I'd like to thank Elise for joining me for this discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode. So Elise, thanks so much for joining me today on the IOIDEA podcast. If you don't mind, could you just uh, tell me a little bit about yourself? I would love to. Um, I've been thinking about how I how I want to introduce myself these days. Um, I am I, I identify in no necessary order as a mom, a feminist, a scholar, or teacher, and a theater person. Um, and so, in various iterations of my life, I've sort of emphasized various aspects of those identities. Right now, I am. Um, a PhD uh, candidate at the University of Georgia. I'm working on getting my PhD in theater and performance studies with an emphasis in women's studies. And I teach in women's studies. Um, and I also direct theater productions and sometimes act in theater productions. Um, and then at this very moment, I'm also, you know, taking care of my kids and uh, trying to deal with pandemic issues and trying to figure out how my future is going to look as I graduate with a terminal degree in a kind of dicey job market and but yeah, that's 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 where I am right now. All right. Well, thank you. A lot of a lot of different hats there. Yep. Uh, so uh, want to dig in kind of on uh, theater and or performance. But uh, how did you get interested in theater? So um, I started. Uh, well, my 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 parents are both academics. My parents are both um, college professors, and so I'm a faculty brat. And so even growing up, the arts were always a real big part of my childhood. My mom uh, got her master's degree in theater at UGA, actually, um, and my dad plays a lot of instruments. My mom plays a lot of instruments. So the arts, in some format, were always just a big part of my upbringing. Um, but I first really got bitten by the theater bug in junior high. Um, at the time, I was planning on becoming a surgeon. That was my career goal, which is really funny for people who know me well, because not a scientist or some person at all, but I wanted to be a surgeon. I think I really wanted to play a surgeon, like on TV, but um, but then I got cast as one of the ugly stepsisters in a junior high production of Cinderella, and the director was this really great, amazing woman um, with a great sense of humor, and I just got bitten. And at the time, I sort of was agonizing, like, how do I keep doing theater while I study to be a surgeon. But by the time I was maybe a junior in high school, I realized that 
the surgeon stuff was ridiculous. I just want to do theater. And I really haven't looked back since then. Um, I went into college knowing that I wanted to major in theater. I picked a college that I knew had a really strong theater program. Um, and from that very first acting one class, that just reaffirmed everything that I thought theater was going to do and be for me. And I've, I've kind of never quit doing it since then. That's great. Thank you. Uh, so Beyond that, uh, you'd, you'd mentioned one of your early teachers and then also a class. What are some other influences that uh, kind of drove you down the, the theater rather than surgery path? <laughs> um, well, it's interesting to actually think about the connections between those two, because I think, um, you know, in my like 14 year old mind, um, being a surgeon or being a doctor was all about sort of helping people and, you know, reaching out to people that are in need and finding a way to sort of solve their problems or help them live better lives. And those are absolutely some of the same reasons why I'm driven towards and interested and maintain this sort of lifelong interest in theater. Um, Cause I think that, you know, I think a lot of us when we're in high school or, or junior high productions of theater, you have that, that really intense bonding experience, right? Like where you're with this cast of people that you maybe wouldn't hang out with in your regular life and you share this experience and it's very intense and it's for this limited time period and you, you go through this thing together and you make sort of these really intense friendships. Um, and there's something about that that I just find really appealing and, and it's this way of of sort of focusing in a, in a small, more manageable context, the ways in which human interrelationships inter and interactions play out in a wider social scenario. Um, so there's something about that kind of social experimentation and about that camaraderie and that collaboration and that ability that theater has to draw people from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds and experiences and enable and allow this, this collaboration to happen. And I, I just find it, magical and that that can happen within the context of telling stories of you know living out different kinds of, of human lives and different iterations of human lives i just think it's this magical combination of elements that you don't really find anywhere else oh that's great yeah and i want to dig in a little bit on that too because i um and for folks that uh, Elise and I were both board members for an independent theater company in uh, minneapolis and had at times uh, very complimentary roles, yep. and you know, but uh, I, I, you were you're the artistic director, and yep. you know one of the one of the things that was always interesting is how do we balance uh, kind of uh, art and business, yeah, right? and and how those can be challenging, and uh, so but I I use I've used my theater background uh, a lot in design because uh, sure. especially the early 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 prototyping for me is almost like blocking or read throughs like. Just oh, are totally. we even thinking about this the right way before we even spend money on set design? And yeah. then let's look at the space. Are we even going to have somebody be able to enter from here or there? Right. And yeah. so it's a lot of, a lot of parallels. And, but I think the biggest one for me with craft is what it takes to get a final production in front of somebody uh, and where you're hoping for like a flawless couple. We'll say our, even like, Flawless short, a flawless, you know, hour yep. show. Uh, just the amount of front of house, back of house stuff that needs to happen for one production to come together. Can you talk a little bit about managing all of those moving Yeah, parts? absolutely. Well, so one of the things that really drew me to my undergrad theater program, I went, I got my undergraduate degree from the College of St. Benedict in Minnesota, um, which is a tiny Catholic liberal arts school. And it, it it's just happened to be this liberal is arts that school. for that tiny happened. Catholics? 
Yeah, yes, for little, small, <laughs> tiny Catholics, <laughs> non-Catholics or whomever. Um, but they, uh, they, they just happen to be a school that has this long history of enormously strong support for the arts, not only in terms of their mission, but also financially. And so the theater program there was just crazy strong. And one of the things that that program emphasized was the, um, the collaborative nature of theater. And as a part of that, majors had to take classes in all the different elements. So even though my emphasis was more acting and directing, I had to take classes in costume construction and set design and sound design and stage management and, you know, building sets and everything. And that message of being able to not only recognize what other people are contributing to your project, but also at some basic level, be able to speak their language and understand their concerns, um, really kind of was foundational for me working in theater. That and then my, my acting teacher, uh, Tom Darnell, who was the, a beacon in my undergraduate career, is also uh, has a lot of Buddhist leanings and his whole thing about acting was getting rid of the ego. And so I think this notion of collaborative listening and of, of not putting your own ego sort of center stage to coin a phrase, um, were, were also really foundational for me. And when I think about being an artistic director or even just directing an individual production, those are absolutely the, the tenets that I've drawn, that we have to be able to listen to what other people are bringing, and as far as possible, be able to speak the same language that they do, or at least approach that conversation and goodwill, right? And then that it has to be about focusing on what you're trying to create together, not about what you personally have a sort of stake in, right? And that the, the sum can be much larger than the individual parts if what we're focused on is that collaborative element that we're building as a group of people, bringing in different skills and different perspectives and different vocabulary and different stakes. But that, again, it's that kind of alchemy of those blending of ingredients that can really, can really be fantastic. And honestly, yeah, like you were saying, this applies to UX work, it applies to design work, it, it hugely applies to my academic and scholarly work, like in the classroom, um, collaborative conference presentations or organizations. You know, I feel like one of the fantastic things about theater is that whether you end up going into it professionally or academically or whether you just sort of like, you know, do a couple of community theater shows as a kid, these are skills that, they're life skills. Theater skills are life skills. And so no matter what you end up going into, these are skills you can draw on in your, in your life. That's great, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> do you mind exploring that a little bit with me? Yeah. Uh, talking about, especially like even, even in teaching, and I know it gets a little minute because you're, sometimes you're, you're teaching theater, but now you're also with uh, women's studies. But how, how, does, how does theater help you as a teacher? Well, the listening is key, right? I think one of the things that makes for a good teacher is being able to really hear what your students are saying, not only um, not only what they're sort of concretely saying, but what they're what what's implied behind what they're saying. Teaching in women's studies, um, teaching for me in general is such a fount of optimism, right? Like when I feel like the world is problematic and I'm depressed about the state of things or where we are, teaching always is a way of kind of bringing me back to center because um, in general, I find my students so just so amazing. Like they're, they're optimistic and they're hardworking and they get it and they ask the right questions and they are eager to explore new ideas. And I find that so uh, rejuvenating in some ways. But so in terms of how that connects to theater and performance skills, obviously getting it up in front of a classroom involves a little bit of performance, right? You have to be able to sort of channel that performer that feels like you have permission and authority to speak in front of this number of people. Um, but also it's the listening and it is the collaboration because I, I honestly believe that 
that teaching is not, you know, it's not unidirectional, right? It's not like I have this knowledge that I'm going to funnel into your little, you know, student brain and make you smarter. It's more, you know, here are some things that I know about. Here's a structure that I can set up for us to explore and play within together and maybe find some new ideas um, as, as a group of, 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 of people who are interested in a similar topic. And so especially I think when we're exploring uh, you know, the kinds of things that we explore in women's studies are sort of, you know, gender roles and uh, intersectionality and racism and classism and, you know, the struggles of oppressed peoples everywhere. And these are hard topics to talk about, especially, you know, for some kids that are coming in fresh from a real kind of uh, monolithic or homogenous kind of high school background. These, these are scary topics. And so the theater part of me, I think, enables me to approach these topics with humor and, um, and with that listening ear to sort of say, look, these are things we can talk about and it doesn't have to be scary. It can be fun or interesting or creative. And then also I try to infuse that kind of performative sense with a lot of my assignments. So, you know, instead of making kids write a paper about something, maybe they, maybe we have a slam poetry contest at the end of the semester and they all have to like get up and perform some slam poetry on gender roles or whatever you know so it's a way I think that that theatrical sensibility has really been a huge asset to me as a teacher and hopefully my, my hopefully my students would say the same thing but it definitely informs kind of everything that I that I do in all all aspects of my life thanks uh one of the things that I like to uh, explore here is we're you know dig into kind of craft and creativity uh, but want to talk about, you had mentioned some early influences or mentors, but if you, if you don't mind uh, maybe sharing a little bit of wisdom that you picked up along the way. Yeah, I mean, uh, boy, life is all about attaining that wisdom, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I think one of the great things about growing up in the theater and doing, having done it for so many decades in a row now, is that it's a it's a discipline that doesn't let you um, become static, right? There's no way working in theater to sort of become entrenched, if you're doing the work honestly, to become sort of entrenched in a certain set of activities or behaviors or mindsets because you're bumping up against too many other people all the time, right? So in some ways, I feel like theater is a, a discipline that is constantly unsettling you, right? It's constantly challenging you to like, oh, that that's not how I thought we did rehearsal, but that's how you do rehearsal. Okay, let me incorporate that into my idea. Or that that's not how I thought we did vocal work, but but it's working for you. So let's let's figure out how we can adjust to that. So I feel like, you know, I definitely have my sort of master teachers. My acting teacher in college is one. My current advisor is another one of my master teachers, uh, Marla, Professor Marla Carlson, um, who does amazing work with uh, different kinds of theater and disability and autism and feminism. Um, and so I have these big sort of master teachers that have had huge influences on me, but at the same time, I feel like almost everybody that I encounter in the course of the theatrical production um, or a theater company becomes a master teacher for me because it's all about that navigation of, okay, I come in thinking, well, here's, here's what I want to do, especially as a director, right? When I, when you're a director, you kind of have this sense of being in charge at some level. So I'll come in saying, okay, well, here's how I'm envisioning this production. Here's the way I think it should happen. Here's how I think this is going to go. And then of course, that isn't ever how it works. And sometimes my vision works great and we can kind of go along with that, but also other people, other the actors and the designers and the production budget and the, you know, the chairman of the board who wants us to actually make some money this time. And, you know, these other kinds of things end up butting up against it. And I, 
one of the goals of my life as both a theater practitioner and just as a human being is to try to remain open to those as learning activities and trying to sort of figure out when is it important for me to sort of stand my ground and say, no, this vision is important and I'm going to kind of push back. When is it important to sort of say, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting that this maybe needs to move in a different direction and that can be fruitful as well. Because I know that, that both as a director and as a teacher, some of my most amazing moments have happened when unexpected qualities and quantities arise, right? So when a student comes right. up with an idea that just seems totally out of left field, and instead of me shutting it down and going, no, that's not how I think this should go, being receptive to it and thinking, okay, what can come out of this? And sometimes it's amazing stuff. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's not great, but sometimes <laughs> it's amazing. And so I think for me, in terms of influences, it's been, it's been working with people in in the industry and in education who have that kind of openness and that ability to be receptive to new weird crazy ideas and and let them flower and see what happens from them i don't know if that answers your question yeah no that's that's great and while while you were you were describing that one of the things i was thinking about is also you know kind of related to design is these different phases of almost divergent and convergent thinking like early on like what might this be or what what might we explore with this and then like you said the the constraints Right, because like the harsh realities of a time frame, but the the physical space, uh, right? Those, but then it's like, okay, so here's how we can hone in and and needing to embrace both styles of thinking, right? For, for a production to happen, right? Like we right. Ha- let's continue to explore because if we keep doing the same thing over and over again, it's boring, uh, right? But and then there's some got to get shit done, right? right. <laughs> Well, and also I think that the notion that that constraints can be productive, right? Like, so instead of this this kind of binary, like either we get to be creative, fun-loving, free-willing people, or we're limited by these stupid constraints, like that's not how it works at all. In fact, having us, you know, only being able to afford a really tiny black box theater space can be this great creative, like impetus to like, you know, how do we solve this problem? Like what kinds of things can come out of this that can make it even better than we thought it was going to be? And I think honestly, to me, that's one of the sort of uh, reasons why the Iowa idea became so powerful and got so big and so sort of influential as, as quickly as it did is because this notion of marrying like creativity with scholarship is that sort of like, let's take this, this freewheeling amorphous sort of thing that is artistic creativity and marry it to this more structured disciplinary thinking that happens in the academy and look at what kinds of amazing things can happen when those two elements are talking to each other. And that, I right. think that, that gets reflected out in so many different ways that it's, it's kind of incredible. Thank you. Yeah. And while you were saying that too, like one, one of the big things with uh, design is a lot of it is researched uh, yes. and a lot of qualitative research too, but a lot of it is teasing out the difference between analysis and synthesis is that analysis, let's, how modular can we get? What are these parts? What do they mean? Now, if we reassemble them, what, what might we be able to do, right? And so then it becomes like generative and, and then a synthesizer kind of thinking styles, but that's absolutely, yeah, absolutely it when you were talking about this new form of collaboration, Right, right. And you've got to have people whose minds can kind of do both of those activities, right? You can't just have somebody who's solely in the analysis. So, you know, you've got to have somebody who can do the synthesis as well to really make that blend together. I was, I posted a meme on Facebook today that I thought was so funny and kind of relevant to this discussion, which is that uh, when you teach STEM without the humanities, you get uh, Spider-Man villains. And when you teach theater without the humanities, you get Batman villains. Um, and I just think... <laughs> 
I mean, that's silly, but there's a way in which that really resonates with me as a theater person that, you know, yeah, it's fine. You can be all theatrical and dramatic and going out there with your capes and your crazy makeup and terrorizing people, but you need that kind of anchor of the humanities and the liberal arts to sort of really you know, ground you in your, in your drama and, and ground you in your science, right? That humanity yeah. part is really huge. Yeah. The create the, the creativity as well. Like, yeah, di- just different ways to explore because it's another thing is with collaborative teams and business is starting to get wise to this, but it's taken a long time is that uh, at the end of the day, the more diverse the team, the better the, the output. Yes. Right? absolutely. And right. And I that's something doing- that theater has known forever, right? Yeah, I was doing some work with uh, uh, a business that was looking at doing uh, sustainable innovation, and uh, it was it was healthy that we're digging in, we're talking through it. Uh, but one of the interesting things that uh, sitting at a, a C-suite with a bunch of white males from <laughs> fifty to sixty-five, and it was because, uh, hey, you guys haven't haven't seen any anything, any new problems, no new way to do, you're just, right? I mean, when everybody has the same mental model, right? Right. So it's, it's, it's the same enablers, it's the same blinders, but it's just, yeah. You get siloed, yeah, you get into that kind yeah. of that place where if everybody around you has sort of got the same background and the same ethnicity, yeah, and this is, again, where my, like the theater and women's studies stuff just really builds on, on, on one another, because again, it's that being forced to sort of bump into and interact with and work with people with, real different experiences and real different outlooks and real different perspectives. And, and that can be super frustrating sometimes. And sometimes it's really hard to find that common vocabulary, but, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely, you know, essential that that happens. And I think even looking at sort of the global community and the way that the pandemic is, is affecting all of us, that I think we're seeing that even, even more at even larger scale right now. What, one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in right now for obvious reasons is what, you know, what academia, what theater is going to look like moving forward, because, of course, the arts and, and, and education are two of the industries that are being hit the hardest by, by the lockdown and by this pandemic. And it's been really interesting to watch different, you know, my different theater groups and different academic mamas and stuff talking about like, okay, so what if tenure just disappears? Or what if live performance just can't happen for like five years? Like what happens to all of these people for whom that's their livelihood and not even just their livelihood, but sort of their soul feeding machine, right? Right. Um, And I think it's gonna take all the creativity and ingenuity that we have to figure out what this new world is gonna look like. But I also think that people in the performing arts and the arts in general and in academia are the ones who are best positioned to sort of figure some of this stuff out. At least I, I hope that's the case. Cause it's, yeah, it's scary. No, no thanks. Cause that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. And so I'll keep pulling at that thread a little bit is, um, you know, almost the business model of theater and how that, that might change. And, we don't know exactly, but that that's one of the things for me is like it's live theater is that that's kind of its value proposition, right? And right. That's, that's having other people around you to react. It's, it's, it's actors and performers responding and feeding off the energy of the crowd. Uh, so I'm, yeah, just really curious to see how this might play out. Yeah, there have been a bunch of um, sort of pandemic play reading groups that I've I've been seeing pop up on Facebook and other places where you know people are taking original works or already written works and and doing sort of staged reading kind of thing via Zoom. And there's some there's some real value to that I think, and and it's been interesting to sort of see how it plays out. But of course, Zoom is you know 
not built yeah. for that kind of work at all. And it's not right. great in a lot of ways for it. Um, it's been interesting to see those, uh, the, you know, the videos that get posted of like the musicians and the choirs, um, you know, where people are, are singing their part from home yeah. and then it all gets edited together in this beautiful. But I think what we're seeing mostly right now are ways of sort of compensating for the traditional lack that we're all facing of our, of our performance homes. And I think what's probably going to have to start happening is that we shift from that kind of nostalgia for what we used to have that we would like to have again and start looking a little bit more proactively and creatively at what what's possible to do theatrically and creatively with what we have right now. I know that um, Bill Irwin, you know, he's the master clown um, uh, performer. He, what's, he, he used to be Mr. Noodle on Sesame Street, for those of you that have kids. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And uh, so he's, he's an amazing performer and he's been doing some experimentation with how you can do clowning on Zoom. So using the physical space, but also the, the kind of demarcations of the Zoom screen to play mm -hmm. with like, you know, if I push over here and the person who's Zooming with me pushes over there, you know, it can look like our hands are touching and what kinds of things can we do? How can we manipulate this virtual space in a performative way? And I think that, we're going to start seeing more and more of that kind of experimentation. Of course, to your point about the value proposition of theater, you know, there's no substitute for live bodies in the same space together reacting right. to the same thing. And so I don't know how that's going to shift and change. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm sad about not being able to do shows right now. And I, of course, hope that we will be able to once again. And I think theater has survived you know, other plagues in past eras and will survive okay. this one. But it's, uh, you know, there was a news story about the Globe in London maybe getting closed down because of the kind of financial hit that they're taking over the the pandemic. And I just thought, well, you know, it's, that wouldn't be the first time the Globe got closed down because of a, a plague. Right. <laughs> um, and it somehow manages to come back. So I'm, I'm hopeful about the longevity of theater as an art, but I, it, we're definitely in a struggling period right now. And it's it's very interesting to watch how people are are responding to that uh, both sort of optimistically and creatively and, and artistically, like what's possible, you know, how can we, how can we navigate this world and still produce things that are meaningful to us and that feed our souls, but that, that are safe and that honor the theatrical history that we all bring with us. Thanks. Uh, backing up uh, just a couple minutes there. It was uh, Mr. Noodle was also Mr. Noodle, like when he was introduced, right? It's Mr. Noodle, Mr. Noodle's brother, Mr. Noodle. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> and they had a sister too. I think there was a Ms. Noodle. Kristen Chenoweth was Ms. Noodle yeah, for a while. Yeah. I just, for whatever reason, I was tickled by that introduction. I guess that makes sense if one adult, right? Is, right they all have the same last name. <laughs> <laughs> Those were some of my favorite things on Sesame Street for sure. Uh, one of the things, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, there's a local uh, social media marketing company uh, here in Iowa City, uh, and early on, they did a Zoom meeting, and they arranged it where they were all passing their dog, so it looked like a dog would go off screen, and then somebody else would catch it, awesome. and just, and so I think, that I, I want to say it went through like six or eight screens, but you're, you're watching this, it looked like a dog moving through there, and well, and I mean, you've changing. probably seen some of those, uh, they, they have, there's one with stunt men and one with stunt women where, it, you know, each individual stunt woman will like look at the screen and then like throw a punch and then the next person will react as though they just got that punch and then do something different. And there was one that had like a bunch of female celebrities and female stunt women and it was an incredible video. Like it was super fun to watch and, you know, very dynamic and they were using these skills that they've obviously honed over a lifetime of performance. And so this is the kind of thing I think where people are sort of playing with and experimenting with what 
you know, what can we do? Yeah. What can we do stuck at home with our computers to, to put some entertainment out there for the world and kind of fulfill that need in ourselves? It's interesting to, uh, at the time we're recording this, in a couple of days, I have to lead a day-long workshop that had been had been planned for quite some time, and it's 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 one that's delivered in person and all all of the tropes of a design workshop, right? The big post-its, yep. we're moving around, and so adjusting for that has been interesting as I like kind of think through how different exercises might work and and using using Zoom. And I'm sure by the time this episode's published, it'll be one of the best online workshops anybody's ever had. <laughs> <laughs> but it is no it's it's so it's what i found it interesting is the amount of brain power i'm spending on like trying to trying to rethink this uh yeah. because there are there are certain elements that it, while you keep working on your craft there's still times where you're like okay I, I can take that as given. I know how this well, material works. Yeah, it's an efficiency thing, right? Like, so we built yeah. up this kind of vocabulary and repertory of, okay, well, I know how to take care of that problem so I can focus on this other thing that I want to focus on. And that's yeah. all been thrown up in the air now, right? Because we all have to figure out, okay, well, I know academic conferences too, a lot of the ones that are transitioning to being Zoom only, it's like you did, you did have 20 minutes to present your research, but now we can give you a 10 minute Zoom video to present your research. So you need to condense all that information or have a QR code that people can scan to find out <laughs> right. more or, you know. So yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot of mental energy. The online teaching situation too, I'm sure with your kids and me with mine, yep. that mind shift of like, okay, I, I know how to learn in a classroom, but how do I learn this complicated biology lesson from somebody on a computer screen that I can't exactly hear or see very well? It, so it does, it, it, the mental energy involved in making that switch is huge. Yeah, the conference thing that's interesting too, because I've already gone through two conferences that were you know, supposed to be like, what are at least our old mental model was for conferences, right? right. And went went digital and the the organizers did a fantastic job adjust especially time wise because this was like if you know it was like it's almost fully baked as a, a physical conference to begin right. with but i was just discussing with another designer about uh the notion of zoom fatigue and we were exploring that a little bit and also when you go to conferences some of that is the joy is that i'm not on a computer screen it's yeah. not the same work environment and that was completely kind of removed. And, and then uh, one of the things I'm noticing for Zoom fatigue is, as you and I are talking, recording over Zoom, right, I see an image of myself yes. and it's, it's always projected, but it's like a mirror and yes. you're collaborating with people in real estate. You're, you're not all, oh, wait, wait, how am I looking to do it? You know, right. do, I have a, do I have a boogie hanging out? Am I, you know, like, <laughs> Well, and that, I mean, that goes back to that, the problem of the ego that I was talking about earlier, right? Which is, you know, it's really related to, I think, that, that idea of getting into a state of flow and, and being in that state of mental flow is sort of the ideal place to do good work. Um, and I think that, yeah, that combination of conferences being sort of a fun travel opportunity, so making it special that way, but also that you're, you're in this environment with lots of people that have expertise in an area that you're interested in. I think does make it easier to sort of click into that state of flow where you're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about what you look like. You're not thinking about right. how you sound. You're thinking about the ideas that you're sort of talking out with these other interesting people. And on Zoom, I tell you, I mean, yeah, boy, like, oh, I, my lipstick, I look like I'm dead. I should put some makeup yeah. on or, oh, my hair is looking insane. And you, it, it's, it's totally, it totally interferes with that, that state of flow and makes it really hard to sort of get your ego out of the equation and focus on the collaboration. And, and it's, it's something we're going to have to figure out how to overcome, I think, because it's, 
it interferes. It interferes with that process. And it is, it's making me rethink uh, accessibility as well. Yes. Right. Because it's, you know, they're also in a physical space. You know, you think about different, almost different learning styles. Okay, let's talk. Let's have a dialogue. Let's yes. have visuals up here. Uh, but the space is so limited. And then it's like, if I'm going to do the visual, wait, am I sharing my screen? Okay, right. Am I sharing I my, my dirty right. office? Like, do I have books in yeah. here that I don't want people to know I have? Well, also as a teacher. Your, your office looks, for the record, your office looks great. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate that. I try. Uh, but, you know, when I, we went to online teaching this semester at UGA and, and I'm, I was teaching an intro to women's studies class and a, a sort of upper level in women's studies class. And, you know, these are great kids. A lot of them are women's studies majors. So they're totally on board with a lot of these concepts and ideas. We've had great discussions. And I was sort of chatting with them. I chose to structure my class asynchronously. So, you know, we weren't doing sort of live synchronous Zoom sessions. It was sort of ad hoc as, as people had time. And I had a couple online sessions that were optional. And I was asking my students how their other classes were going and what were their other profs doing to, to go online. And I, I was really surprised because it hadn't occurred to me. I had students who were sort of saying, you know, some of my women's studies classes where we're doing synchronous learning, I have to like go do my class in my closet or lock the bathroom door because we're talking about gender issues or we're talking about abortion or we're talking about, you know, um, Muslim rights or something that her, that their parents or the people that they were living with would not be okay with them discussing, which is something that, I mean, that just speaks to my privilege that that hadn't occurred yeah. to me that that would be an issue. Right. But yeah, talking about terms of like accessibility and, and, and leveling that playing field, going when you know you start doing online learning from home where students are living with their families who maybe don't know about all the stuff they're getting up to in college it becomes this whole new kind of minefield of of accessibility and equity and how do we allow these students to pursue the things that really get them excited without endangering them in their own homes um so that's been a whole nother issue to sort of think about as an educator but also as a theater person you know how some of my students might not be able to perform that monologue that they want to perform from their homes if it was not written for somebody of their gender or if it was you know not written for somebody of their race or ethnicity like how do we how do we create the safe spaces that are so important in both education and in theater when we have we're in different spaces that aren't equally safe yeah this is this is super and this is one of the big things i've been looking at right now um the specific practice is just called strategic doing uh, and it's emerging from the Purdue agile strategy labs. And it's where traditional strategic planning falls apart because it's so you spend so much time talking about the plan and actually by the time it hits the real world, it yeah. falls apart. Right. And looking at, um, you know, like with complex problems, how do we have loose networks of collaborators that we can work with and we can iterate and uh, what I love about their approach, and there's like 10 major things that you have to do. The first thing that you do is create a psychologically safe space for people to exchange ideas. Yeah, yeah. that's foundational. And, yeah, it was great. And, and it was actually, I talked to Ed Morrison, who's the founder. And sorry, I'm look, I just have to grab this note because I thought you might appreciate this. Um, oh, darn it. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, it was, so just anyway, when I was talking to uh, Ed Morrison, because there's some work that I'm doing with some uh, scientists here where we're start, like the hard science, and we're starting to explore more liberal arts, creative ways of problem solving and, and team dynamics and how that might help. And so we're talking about that. And he was talking about new stuff that they're doing at the University of Michigan, at Indiana, at Clemson and Kansas, where they're starting to explore strategic doing. 
But one of the things that I found really interesting was that, you know, he talks about an organization and then a subset of the organization is the team. And then he said the smallest unit of the team that you can influence is the conversation. And so ah. they, they embrace psychological safety and then kind of the next step combined with framing is appreciative inquiry. Hmm. So yeah. Yeah, that's, you, that totally ties in with what I'm talking about yep. with that listening. Yeah, the listening to what we yep. have to say with an open So the, the, Ed and I were talking about, uh, you know, like what I'm seeing as strong connections to the improv principles, right? And yes. Saying like yes, to, right? That's what it is. Say, say yes, yes, and how, how can we build? Best idea wins. It's not my idea. It's our idea. Yep. Uh, declare, declare and commit. So also when it's out there, Y'all got to commit to this. Yeah, right. 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 We all got to buy in. Right. Well, and, yeah. and I think, you know, even sort of foundational to that is, is from a sort of a Bloom's taxonomies perspective. I was reading about um, equity issues in, in secondary or uh, secondary education um, with the online stuff. We live in a, a school district that's one of the poorest districts in Georgia. Um, uh, it's it's uh, majority, uh, majority minority, as it gets called, majority non-white school district. Um, and so when the, the Clark County School District went to online only, um, there was, a, to, to Clark County's credit, there was a real awareness that, look, not all of our students are coming from the same level of accessibility and equity when it comes to educational stuff. So some of them, the Clark County gives everybody from the third grade up their own laptop. So everybody has mm -hmm. a computer, but not everybody has the same internet access, right? Like not everybody has broadband. Not everybody has a parent at home with them during the day to help supervise their educational stuff. Um, and so I think it was a real... Uh, learning curve for the school district as well as for all those parents at home with our kids as to how is this going to work and if we have to do this again in the fall what can we do with a little bit more lead time to make this more equitable um, I mean you know there's always going to be inequities you can't solve all the world's problems and nor should education be expected to solve all the world's problems but what kinds of things can we do to keep to, to sort of form that that safe space to the greatest extent possible for our most vulnerable uh, students, because, you know, if, you, if you've got somebody who's in an abusive household or where there's no internet or there's no kind of accountability or no parent at home and you're not allowed to meet in that sort of safe zone of the school where learning can happen, that, that's a real challenge. And I think as much as that's been a challenge for universities, it's, it's maybe even more of a challenge at the secondary level for kids who are, you know, falling through the cracks. Yeah, I wish I could remember where this was, but it was just a couple months ago. The calendar tells me it was a couple months ago. It feels like a decade ago, right? <laughs> the, the, the pandemic timeline is, is, right. is messed with, with, with my, my senses quite a bit. But uh, so I, I, was in, I was in a cohort for community leadership in, in Iowa City. And what's really interesting is each month there's a new topic. And you talk to basically practitioners, experts about it. And, you know, we've had healthcare. The last day we had was education. And that was right before... With community leadership program, uh, one day a month, we, we spend a day with different leaders and we did like healthcare, we did government, and you see how complex and interconnected communities are. And when we did a, the education day, one of the things we found is a big uptick and it's related to social emotional intelligence and kids feeling safe. But yes. uh, one of the things they started doing at the school was somebody just checking in with the kids as they walked in. Hey, how are you doing today? How you feel? You all right? And and also encouraging kids to say like, what, you know, um, my parents were fighting last night or, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm hungry. I didn't get a breakfast. You know what? Let's get you, let's get you some food or, Hey, let's talk about that. And almost just realizing if a kid is having a tough 
time outside, how are they supposed to shut that down and learn? Right. right? And so I just I mean, it can saw be that as, as like, simple as like as laundry, right? Like I know that some right. of the school districts around here have have instituted, you know, they have a washer and dryer on campus so that if students don't have access to clean clothes, they can bring in their dirty laundry and get that done yep. while they're at school. Or, you know, having uniforms available. The the Clark County School District where my girls go to school is until you hit high school, it's a uniform school. And one of the rationales behind that is so that there is less of an emphasis on what you're wearing and more of an emphasis on the educational stuff. And I don't, you know, there's argument about how effective that is or isn't, but but I think it's it's definitely something that we need to be attending to since we currently are expecting our schools to do so much beyond just sort of basic education. Yeah. Like, yeah, recognizing that, yeah, if you're, if you're coming to school with an, a, an empty stomach every day, you're not gonna be able to focus on your multiplication table. Like, it's just not gonna happen. Um, yeah. Not even to get into behavioral issues and and right. and those kinds of, of of problems. So, it's it's complicated, and I think the the pandemic stuff is just complicating it even further, and and in ways that we haven't spent years and years and years studying and adapting to. Yeah, it's and for me, it's it, it, all of these are like stereotypically complex adaptive problems and systems, right? The it yes. keeps evolving, and and I think sometimes we have trouble because we try to write policy as if we found the, the problem or the solution. And then yes. we're going to, rather than this, this thing is continuing to morph, you know, how might we optimize rather than seek the perfect answer? Right. Right. Just like a virus. You could, you could say right. it continues right. to and change. <laughs> and one might even call it novel. One might even. Cause it's new. We haven't seen this exact form we, yet. We sure have not. We sure but have it's not. 19. We've probably seen <laughs> Episodes one through 18, haven't we? Oh, God, yeah. Um, so uh, a, couple, a couple other topics I'd love to dig in with you. And uh, you might have even heard my dog uh, shaking himself off in the background. Uh, is, you know, I, I, I'd love to see the world in, in, in Venn diagrams. And one, one Venn diagram in my life would be creative college towns. Yep. Major college sports and dogs. <laughs> I mean, UGA, yeah. come on. That's all and right there. I write. And so I was going to ask about UGA. And if my memory serves me correctly, is that your family actually had to, was responsible for, for UGA? No, no, that, not for UGA. Not for UGA. God, I wish we'd be millionaires. No, uh, <laughs> no, my family, no, my family is responsible for the school mascot for the Clark County Middle School, which is the house. Okay. My mom, okay. my mom went to Clark County Middle School and they had a contest to figure out what their mascot was going to be. And she thought, you know, Athens, Athena, the owl. So she, uh, she came up with the owl mascot. So yeah, God, no, I wish it was Ugga. Ugga is, however, I will, this is, this is the ground I will die on, is the best college football mascot that there is. So, you know, just embrace that. while we're bet, bet, Better than Handsome Dan? <laughs> I mean, it's close, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to yeah, go with it. Yeah, I love, I, I, uh, I adore Ugga, uh, both, both Ugga in, in live form, but also kind of the, the underbite cartoon version of yes. the, <laughs> the All the versions of Ugga are awesome, yeah. yeah. Well, it's also, you know, one of the other great things about UGA, this is, I don't know how, this is kind of off topic maybe, but um, the, there's a, a big program to train um, companion animals, companion dogs, at UGA and so a ton of students uh, sign up to sort of foster and help socialize and train these dogs that are going to go on to be like seeing eye dogs or other kinds of companion animals so one of the joys of teaching at UGA is that often to, uh, most of the time I would say I'll have one or two students who's bringing this dog in training this puppy in training with them to class um, 
And so there's this real culture of sort of loving on dogs at UGA. And so like during finals periods or during midterms, they'll bring in dogs on campus and you can have like dog, so dog time to kind of chill out and de-stress. And then the dogs that get, you know, brought into the classes by these people that are socializing them, you can't pet them without permission, but they'll always give you permission. So you get a little bit of the animal time sort of at the beginning and end of class. So that it, it's a, it's not just UGA, it's like a whole thing at UGA that yeah. dogs are sort of aware of that, which is pretty oh, that, That's great. My, uh, uh, the co-working space where I have my office, uh, it's a, it's a dog friendly environment and our dog Bowie gets to hang out with me in the office periodically. And, uh, there's different levels. So you go see different dogs, but one of, <laughs> one of my favorite times is there's three, uh, dogs on our floor that they, if my door is open, they all just come in, Aww. hang out for a little bit and then just move on. So yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, I love, I love having dogs around. Um, well, you know, I'll tell you, it's, I mean, to bring it sort of back on topic a little bit, like one of the things I love about it is that the introduction of dogs into a classroom sort of breaks down those kind of rigid expectations and assumptions we can make about what the classroom is going to look like. And I'm kind of in favor of anything that does that. Like I'll have students bring, you know, sometimes if they have little kids and, and there's a, a snow day or whatever, not that that ever happens yeah. in Georgia, but you know, um, sometimes they have to bring their kids to class and I, I, embrace that. Um, I think that, you know, dogs and kids and breaking down disciplinary barriers and injecting performance into science and science into performance and anything that we can do to kind of break down these divisions that we set up in our brains and in our kind of society, I think is, is for the better. And I, that's, that's one of the things I like about yeah. on campus and, you know. That's one of the things too. It's like, uh, when I try to embrace an optimistic side too of everything that's going on, one of my thoughts or hopes is you know, the downside of Zoom fatigue, but I'm wondering if, if more often than not, might we be more kind of empathetic yeah. uh, as because we're seeing new levels of humanity, right? Yeah. And we're, it's, it's been a lot more intimate, right? As people see different yeah. parts of a home, uh, but also that, uh, you know, a partner, spouse child might run by in the background or yep. you know cat jumps on screen or <laughs> dog runs into a recording session starts shaking yeah uh, well even like with like Stephen Colbert uh, and you know the, the all those yeah. broadcasting that's been kind of one of the features of that right is that unexpected stuff happens and you just kind of roll with it and some of it's great I think one of the other things it's showing for me though is also how much uh collaborative work goes into comedy shows and how dull a lot of these are yeah. right now yeah. you know and and i mean it's 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 not as energetic it's not and i know there's you know it's also they're not getting audience reaction but right. it's just one of the things i've noticed is it's it's clear that they're not even having the same dynamic with their writing teams no no, and then there's all this kind of invisible work that's happening that you don't even notice in the background until right. it's not there and then it's like oh this is different yeah. and weird okay yeah so a quote that I thought you might appreciate, this was something I came across. This was, um, uh, uh, so Mike Montero, who's a designer, uh, he and his wife, uh, Erica Hall, they run uh, Mule Design, but they started something during quarantine called Quarantine Book Club. And it started with design-related authors, and then they've been expanding to all kinds of different different authors. They had Michael Beirut, and he's a graphic designer and uh, just for years been doing premiere work. Awesome. But it was it was really interesting, uh, and and the reason I'm bringing this up was actually when we were also talking about uh, theater and performance as collaborative and what what it means. But 
Michael Beirut was talking about like how he looks at creativity and he paused and reflected. And then he said, real creativity is to anticipate an emotion and it's an act of generosity. Yes, that is good. And I loved it. I I mean, because so often sometimes I think we like creativity as like, and we've, we've, we've been around the divas, right? That it's, 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 it's this act of narcissism, right? right? It's like, look at me. Right. But like for him that like true, it, it's, it's anticipating that emotion and being a generous act, I just thought was phenomenal. Oh, that's, that's where it's at too. That's, that's when it's good, right? Like that's when nobody wants to work with the divas, no matter how talented they are, is because they suck that energy out of the collaboration where the collaboration, that, that act of generosity, that, that act of egoless listening is generative, right? Like it generates this energy and this goodwill and this, this, this magic that can only happen when you've got groups of people willing to be generous like that, willing to listen like that. That's, yeah, that's the good stuff, man. An active yeah, and we, uh, I'm today, I, it's just interesting. I'm kind of doing my virtual tour of uh, Georgia. I was, uh, <laughs> was talking to a friend uh, who also uh, lived in Athens for a while, but is uh, now in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And he has an independent uh, film company. He does like, like film and creative work, usually for corporations, right? When they need corporate video. Sure. Uh, but we were talking about uh, collaboration, and then we were talking about uh, the folks from Fallon, uh, Fallon yeah. and Sten, when they wrote "Juicing the Orange," and one of their last chapters was called "Fire the Assholes." Yeah. <laughs> that they've never seen. They've never seen the asshole equation pencil out in in favor of the organization nope that the, the person is so destructive that what yep. they do to everybody around them it's not, it's not like they've ever they ever brought home like a great account or delivered right yeah and, and so we well, were actually as, just as talking director, about that yeah like as a director that's definitely been you know i've been directing shows for how old am I now? I'm almost like almost 30 years. Wow. I've been directing shows for almost 30 <laughs> years. And, uh, and I, one thing, if there's one thing that I've learned is that if it comes down to a choice between a super talented jerk and a less talented collaborator, I will go with the less talented collaborator every damn time <laughs> because, yeah. you know, the talent only gets you so far. It's that willingness to work with other people where things can happen and blossom that will far surpass whatever kind of native talent you brought in the door with you. So it's, it's yeah, assholes are not you, I don't know if you've seen, I, um, and, and I know he's not everybody's cup of tea, but Simon Sinek claims to have uh, interviewed a bunch of uh, Navy SEALs. No. And he, t- he talks about like kind of the, uh, uh, a character, like if, if you imagine a two by two matrix kind of thing, but like yeah. running out on like low character to high character and uh, uh, low skill to high skill. Yeah. And they talked to the Navy SEALs would rather have a high character, medium skill. Yeah. than like high skill, medium or low character because oh, gosh, that, yeah. that trust is so important for them. And right. It's like, when they're performing, it really counts, right? I mean, these yeah, right? literally right. life or death, but like, who do, who do you want there with you? Yeah. And you want your character, character is more important than skill. It totally is. Because skills can be adapted and learned, honestly. And there are very few skills that, that even the least skilled person can't kind of improve or pick up on. But, and, and not that character can't be learned as well, but I feel like, you know, if you come into, if you come in the door sort of thinking that you're God's gift, that's much mm-hmm. harder to break down than coming in the door thinking that you, you know, don't know how to do things or that you can't right. or whatever. Um, so yeah. 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 Uh, 
So a question uh, for you. And so this one, taking this from Austin Cleon from his book, Steal Like an Artist, but uh, Cleon argues that when you're giving advice, you're uh, talking to your younger self. Yeah. Is there any advice you wish you would have had earlier in your career? Uh, you know, I, I, these questions are always so interesting because there's a part of me that wants to sort of say, well, you know, I, I wouldn't do anything differently because everything that has I've done has brought me where I am today, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. Um, and I also am one of the lucky ones that had a childhood where I was given a lot of resources and a lot of support for branching out on my own and doing the kinds of things that I wanted needed to do. But having said that, I was recently up very late at night because I am not sleeping well during the pandemic and uh, I caught a rerun of 16 Candles. And I loved 16 Candles. I was, I think, 13 or 14 when that movie came out. I was exactly the age it was made for. I saw it in the theater over 20 times. I was obsessed with it. Um, and so a, a couple years back, I thought, oh, that's, you know, my girls are getting older. Like, I love that movie. I want to show them that movie. But I had the wisdom to think, well, I'll, I'll just screen it one time just to double check that it is the way I remembered it. And oh my God, it was not the way that I remembered it. Um, and I was watching it again this last week on Late Night TV. And I was thinking like, there's so many problematic things about that movie, the way that Long Duck Dong is portrayed and that other races yeah. are portrayed and the way that, you know, the, the expectation that women have to put out and that we can do things with women's drunken bodies without their consent. And, you know, there's right, right. kinds of problematic stuff. And I was thinking about that, but I was also thinking about what an accurate reflection it is of what it was like to be in high school in the mid eighties. Like that's, just really what it was like. And so I was thinking about, you know, maybe I do want to show it to my kids with me watching and sort of saying, look at how it's changed, right? Look at how our expectations about what women's bodies are for and what, you know, dating relationships are supposed to be like and what exchange students are, you know, how their experience is supposed to integrate into the school. Like, look at how much this has changed and, and grown. So I guess if I was going to answer yeah. that question, I would say, uh, I would want to tell my younger self to be braver about um, facing down those kinds of problematic inequities in our study. Not that I was ever not, you know, yeah. I was never too weak wills about that, but, but just to be braver, I think is in general what I would tell my younger self to, to, to have the courage of my convictions and to be braver about that maybe earlier than I was. Thanks. I appreciate that. Cause when you said 16 candles, I'm like, Oh, there's a lot of ways. <laughs> so many bad things. Go. <laughs> right, uh, and and advice, you know, or sorry, just thinking about the the movie, like you said, just all of those things that were almost taken for granted, or that yeah. like you know didn't think critically. And oh, no. as you said that, I'm like, wait, the the heroic male lead is the one that wasn't rapey, <laughs> right? That was right. that was how low the bar was. Exactly. And the geek, like the geek who's the sort of adorable, yeah. you know, harmless little geek is the rapiest one. He's right. the one that like, takes the underpants and like has sex with yeah. the drunk lady. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a minefield, that movie. It's a whole minefield. <laughs> but I still uh, love it. But I still love it. So, uh, have you, have you recorded your daily dumb joke for the day? I have not. We're, I'm going to do that right after this, uh, right after we, we finish up here. Yeah. Daily dumb jokes with Elise. Hi, uh, this is Lise Robinson coming at you live from my living room. I'm uh, ably assisted. I wanted to talk about the Daily Dumb Joke a little bit because I think that's been yeah. my way of getting my performance stuff, you know, my performance itch scratched. Um, so me and my kids have been doing 
a, a daily dumb joke um, pretty much since the lockdown started, like mid-March. Today is going to be our 42nd episode of Daily Dumb Jokes. We take the weekends off. And uh, part of it was because when the lockdown first started, I was really just trying to think of ways that I could contribute something positive to people because it's so hard and so weird and so awful. Um, and, you know, I mean, I can bake stuff, but I can't bake stuff stuff for all of my Facebook friends. Um, and I can't send letters to all my, you know, social media people. But I thought, well, you know, I love dumb jokes. Um, I've always loved dumb jokes. My kids love dumb jokes. This would be something that could maybe structure our days a little bit, having this one thing to do every day, and then just be sort of fun. And so we've just been posting, you know, you've seen them just, uh, they, yes. I, tell, I tell my kids a joke, they tell me a joke, and that's kind of it. They're, each video is like under three minutes long. But what I've been sort of astonished by and just deeply, deeply touched by is the response that we've gotten from people has been crazy. Like people that I haven't heard from that are that are on Facebook but never post anything are messaging me dumb jokes to add to the list or we've gotten fan mail, people writing us cards about how they love watching the Daily Dumb Joke every day. One of my friends who's an Episcopalian priest was saying that in her, um, her, her recently widowed bereavement group. Um, she tries to end those sessions with one of the daily dumb jokes just to kind of lighten things up a little bit after the sessions are done. Um, <laughs> like it's had this, this ripple effect that I could never have predicted and that, you know, we're just doing it kind of to entertain ourselves as much as anything, but it, it really has brought home to me how even just the simplest gestures, again, that generosity of like, you know, here's something silly that I enjoy, maybe you'll enjoy it too, can really make kind of profound connections that that I wasn't expecting and that have been just incredibly meaningful for me and for my kids uh, during this lockdown and have been a real way of, of feeling connected, staying feeling connected, even when we can't physically connect with people right now. So, uh, so yeah, thanks for asking about that. I no, that's, that's great. Yeah, I love it. And I love, I love the interactions that you have uh, with your, with your kids. And I think one of my favorite parts is um, when you can see the thought process <laughs> almost in action. Yeah. Wait. Hang on. Oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> or sometimes it's even funnier when that doesn't happen, when they're like, I have no idea what that joke even means. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fun. And it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a real bomb, bomb for us during this. Uh, Did you do the Zen Master hot dog one yet? No. Oh, we made me one with everything. No, I haven't done that yes. one yet. I got to do that. <laughs> Maybe that'll be today. Because that's I was thinking. Uh, we're uh, we're grilling uh, uh, varieties of encased meats for for dinner, <laughs> uh, vegetarian and carnivorous right. versions. And right. So that was that one I was thinking about. But yeah, thank you for doing the uh, the daily dumb jokes. Are for me, they're a lot of fun, and I. I don't know. It seems like the extreme ends of comedy for me is like, you know, like you and I will talk about like almost like long form absurd yes. stuff and yes. slow burn. Yes. Right? And, but then I was like, like a, a good, a good dumb joke is just, it's so much fun. Yeah. Simple and easy and fun. And, and, right. and it's been, you know, it's been a little tricky for me. I'm not going to lie to stick to the kid friendly ones. Cause some of my favorite dumb yeah. jokes are the not, not <laughs> kid friendly ones, as you right. know. Yep. <laughs> But uh, that's, but that's, you know, again, the limitation is part of the form, right? So it's been good to kind of creatively encourage me to find kid-friendly dumb jokes. Speaking of kid-friendly, small, small comedy thing before we go, one of the things I absolutely love, uh, I forgot where I first saw this, but, and, and it's just like, you know, things we couldn't do easily when, when we were younger, but like with, with YouTube and able to quickly do, pull videos yeah. down. I love when people take a normal conversation 
but then add add bleeps. So it, you know, if you know that nobody was swearing, but then it just sounds like the dirtiest yeah, thing that. Totally. <laughs> yeah, that's comedy right there. Because well, or like the thing you know, like the thing that you know, you can say literally anything, and if you use the right tone of voice, it sounds kind of naughty, right? Like right. You know, like make me one with everything. Like that just sounds. Yeah. Like, that doesn't mean anything, but it sounds dirty. You can make it sound. Dirty. It sounds like a really bad pickup line. Right. It does. Yeah, the bleeps are kind of the same deal. Yeah. Awesome. Was there anything that we didn't touch upon today that you were hoping to cover? Gosh, no, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for letting me talk with you. Thank you. I really appreciate just, uh, again, I'm appreciating the generosity of you taking, taking the time and sharing your insights. It was great catching up with you. Yeah, totally. And I'm super excited about this podcast. So good luck with your future interviews. And I, I can't wait to keep listening. Thanks so much.